So today, because of the holidays, we're going to take a little bit of a, a detour, and we're going to talk about Christmas traditions today. And, we, and, and it, Christmas is a fun time of year. I was telling these guys this morning, this time of year as a pastor, your phone rings nonstop, because inevitably people feel sad this time of year. It's when they start thinking about loved ones that they don't have with them anymore, things like that, and why that affects them. Well, the reason it affects them is because for traditions, really, they always go to grandma's house, or grandma came to them, or mom and dad, or whatever the case may be. There were these things, and there's an emptiness there, and they're just looking for someone to talk to. It's not a big deal. I don't have any problem talking to anybody. And so they'll call in this time of year and just looking for help. But, but when we talk about traditions, especially the Christmas time, typically we're thinking happy thoughts, right? Like traditionally, everybody in their family has something a little different when it comes to celebrating Christmas. Here in America, what do we do? We start off, you know, the kids Christmas Eve. Now, a tradition that came from my family is the kids get to open one present on Christmas Eve evening. Okay, you got to make them wait till night. It's kind of like the appetizer before the main course type of thing, right? It's it and, and really, it is only to bring peace in the home. It's to shut the kids up, so maybe they'll just be appeased for a little bit and they will go to bed right? What's the other thing that was traditional that we typically do in America? He's a big fat guy in a red suit, and it's not me. It is Santa. I know what Jared was thinking back there. It's Santa, right? Now, Santa's wonderful. He's this big, jolly guy. He actually is founded in history. I mean, the St. Nicholas, and there's a whole story behind that that we're not going to get into. But what do we tell the kids? If the reindeer come, there's, there's, there's nine of them. There's eight. Uh, and then the one with the red nose, right? I think that's right. Am I getting it? Rudolph, yep, of course. And they know the song, and, and we could probably all sing it because we've heard it a million times by now. And he comes on Christmas Eve night only if you're good and you're in bed. If you're awake, he's not coming, right? Those are things that we throw out. I think that the legend of Santa has added more like rules to it, basically to control the children. I'm pretty sure that's the only why. Like, oh, if you're awake, he's not going to come. Well, you tell them that, what do they do? For the one time a year, they rush to bed. Or be good. Yeah, this time of year, about six weeks out, just a little pre-Thanksgiving, they start taking inventory of like, have I been good or bad? I think if I can get this right in the next six weeks, there's no coal for me. Right? But Santa comes down the chimney, he puts the gifts, uh, fills the stocking, you give him cookies, right? Uh, so this latest thing here has been reindeer food, kids make it every year, they go and they drop in the snow so the reindeer have a snack and know how to find the house. Um, all of these traditions, I mean, what are some other ones that you guys can think of? I mean, somebody has family traditions, there's just all sorts of stuff out there. What, name something. Think of what's a tradition in your family? Shout out, this is the interactive portion of the program here, folks. So don't be afraid to shout out. White elephant. You do a white elephant gift. You do the fun one or you do the one where you actually try to get something nice? The gag gift. That's the only way white elephant should ever be done, just so you know. Uh, okay, so you do white elephant. That's great. What else is out there? What do we think of this time of year? Food. There you go. Food like what? Pumpkin pie, of course. That's, that's a staple. Turkey. That's another one. Eggnog. Does anybody drink eggnog? Oyster dressing? Okay. That's, I don't, whatever comes in the box is what I eat, so, um, yeah, ducks and dumplings, oh, okay, y'all have some, okay, all right, food, but, but yeah, I mean, we got all sorts of stuff that is kind of like, if we don't have that, Christmas didn't happen, right, I mean, that's just, just, we expect it, candy canes come out one time a year, right, 
all the, the Christmas cookies and all of that. I mean, all of these things. We have all of these traditions in our homes. Like, when you wake up, do you get the stocking first or do you give the gifts first? Or do you torture your children until all the family arrives and then you allow them to open them then? I mean, what do you do? Everybody does it a little differently. We all have these traditions. And if these traditions don't go right, then we just feel like the holiday was off, right? Some people, it's Christmas music. Some people, it's Black Friday shopping. That's the official start. I don't know what's wrong with you people, but... But more power to you. I mean, we have something that kicks off the season, and it's all these traditions. Well, we also have those in the church. In fact, uh, I want you guys to watch this video here real quick. That may be the cutest rendition of the Christmas story ever, right? 
Yeah, so we have traditions when we talk about the things of the church too. In fact, you just saw them in a nutshell. Because what, is, what do we tell, how do we tell the Christmas story? Well, Mary was pregnant. It wasn't her fault. She went to her dad and said, listen, trust me, it was the Holy Spirit, right? A line that no teenage daughter is ever going to get away with. But she was betrothed in marriage. Now, the way they did marriage was a little bit different down there. It was more arranged than it was. We have a dating process, you know. They meet each other online, and then they get together, and like, yeah, I kind of like this guy, or I kind of like this gal, and then they run off and elope. Well, back then, they did it a little bit different, that they would be betrothed, there was a dowry that was paid, all that kind of stuff, and it was a long process. It wasn't this short, you know, get married in, in a couple of weeks thing. I mean, it was a very long process. So she finds out she's pregnant, but Joseph decides he's going to stick it out anyway because an angel appears and says, hey, don't worry, this really is God. This is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Just stay with her. And so they're running, and she's about ready to have the baby. They're on their way to Bethlehem, and they're trying to find a place to stay. So they run into the hotel. The hotel is booked up. They can't find any place else to go. So what do they do? they got to go to the, the barn, go to the stable. She has the baby there. Then three wise men come and bring gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they bring these gifts, and later the shepherds come, because the angel appeared to the shepherd and said, hey, you're going to find her there in, in, in a manger, find him there in a manger. And so they're like, oh, okay, we'll go check it out. And then that's basically the Christmas story in a nutshell. Except none of that is actually true. Except the part that there was a pregnant teenage girl, there were wise men, there were shepherds, he was in a manger. But that's about the extent of it. You see, many of the things that we believe in the Christmas story have been passed down generation to generation through tradition. But they're not actually the way it is in the Bible. Now, the heart of the story is absolutely correct. But what about the details? As you guys know, I am a stickler for details. I, I get kind of like, my mind works a little weird. I've told you squirrels with knives running through my head. It's one of those things that like things just jump out to me and I can't help but notice them. And so uh, these are examples of that today. I want to show you today the real Christmas story. Now I've shown some of this before. I've talked to some of you about it, but I want to show you exactly from the Bible. As I've always said, my goal is to be biblical. Whatever it is, whatever we're talking about, I want to go straight to Scripture. And so when we look at this, we got to look at it from a way, uh, according to Scripture, that we, uh, we see here in the Bible. And so the first thing I want to do is I want to go to this first Scripture. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Question, who is the us? Is it you and me? It's a trick question, isn't it? Israel. It was Israel. It always has been Israel. Who was the us that the child was given? Remember what they were waiting on. The Jews were waiting on a Messiah that was going to come and run the government, right? That is why the disciples kept asking, it was like, when are you going to set up your kingdom? Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? Because they were waiting on Jesus to get, set up his kingdom and run with it. Unto us, 
A son is given, a child is born unto us. The government will be upon his shoulders. So Jesus shows up, and when they accept the fact that he was the Messiah, they're waiting on this very fact to happen. But the key here is this right here. We have to understand this. We have to take out the fact that we, uh, the Bible was not written to you and I. It was written for you and I. It was written to certain people at a certain place. Isaiah was a prophet. Isaiah was reciting the words of God here the entire time. That was what he was always up to, and that's what he was going to do. Let's go to the next verse. Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come, one, come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Who is this written to? Bethlehem. From the prophet Micah. Bethlehem, he's telling him, where's Jesus going to come from? Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. So again, we can't take this out and say, okay, well, who's that talk to? It has to be the Israelites. Why? They were the ones that were waiting on their Messiah. That is the only way this works. So we have to understand that. Context is key. This is how we can understand all of these passages and all of these scriptures. That we understand the context. Number one, that the Bible was written by Jews to Jews. So that context, culturally speaking, has a very big part to play in the understanding of it. Make sense? You guys with me? So we knew about these prophecies. There's tons of them. There's more than just this. But this is just an example. All right. Now the Jews will miss this. Because, well, they, they understand that it was Bethlehem. But Jesus can't be it because he was a Nazarite. Remember, they were talking about that in the temple. So as we go through this, let's begin to look at it. So let's start here with this very first verse. Go ahead and the next one. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Okay, what is registered? It's a census. They're, they want to know how many people they are. You know that sign when you drive by Rock Horse is 1308? There was a census taken. So that's how many people live in this town. I'm pretty sure that when we moved here, it was less. And by the time we actually got officially in town, the number had gone up. They must have heard we were coming. That's all I can figure. That all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So let's hold it right here for a second. Oh, go ahead and go back. Now let's, let's break this down a little bit. Joseph, the father of Jesus, okay, the natural father of this, he goes up. Now the Quirinius and all of that is there because Luke is giving us a timeline. The one thing you have to understand about the book of Luke is he told, oh great Theophilus, I will write to you a more orderly account. In other words, he is putting this stuff in chronological order as it happened. Luke was a doctor, he was a Gentile, he wasn't even a Jew. He went around, he wrote down these facts in history. So, he goes from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth. That's why he was called a Nazarite. It's because Joseph was from Nazareth, and that's where they lived. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It's also called Jerusalem, right? Bethlehem is just a little south of Jerusalem, but the city of David is right there because he was of the house and lineage of David. Why does that matter? Because the Messiah had to come from the lineage of David. That's what the Bible has said. That's why this is important. That's why Luke is putting that piece of information there, that you would know that he is at least plausible to be the Messiah because he is of the lineage of David because remember, the Messiah is going to sit 
on the throne of David for all eternity. Now here's the question. Did Jesus do that yet? He has not. That means he has to come back to the earth in order to do that. So, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, so they're not married yet, who was with child. Go ahead. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Lovely story, right? This is where we get the idea that they were in a mad dash all running around trying to figure out exactly what is going on. And we can't find a place to stay, so we got to go. we got to crash somewhere. Is that what this just said? No. Look what it says here. While they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. They've been there for a while. Nobody in their right mind would ever, because you've got to remember how it was. When they traveled... And Nazareth wasn't too far away, but it was still a several-day journey. You had looters, and people died all the time in travel because it was just a really, really rough time. Now, ladies, if you were eight and a half months pregnant, how many of y'all are jumping on the back of a camel to go on a trip? How many of y'all are actually going to jump in a car to go on a trip? Like, you're miserable. It's no different for her. that's not going to happen. You see, she had been there. They had been there for a while. They they estimate probably six months that she had been there. While it came time that she she delivered for the the son because there was no room in the end, they wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. And we'll come back to that. But no room in the end. Well, what is the end? Well, let's go to the next verse. Let's look at this. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. So here we go. We got Bethlehem. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Go ahead. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I named to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. You see how Bethlehem is kind of a major player here? You see how important that is? See, this is where David had come from. This is why Bethlehem is also known as the city of David. So all of these are fulfillment of prophecies that Jesus is coming into play here. So Samuel anoints David there. Go on to the next verse. He anoints David there, and and he pours the oil on him, and he anoints him as king. So now the Bethlehemites would be this major major player in the prophecy, in the prophetic narrative of Jesus' life. But we go back here. The decree goes out from Caesar Augustus, all the world should be registered. We've read the, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, the house and lineage of David. We're pulling these things together. Go to the next part. So it was while they were, they were there, the days were completed for her to deliver. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Let's hammer on that end. We got Bethlehem. We've got the time frame that she's coming in. It's coming in early. Let's look at this word in. Go to the next slide. You see, the word in there is only used one time, other time in Luke. And this is it right here. Then you should say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. You see, the word in translated there is most often translated as guest room. But what do we think of when we see the word in? Motel 6, right? Howard Johnson, the light's always on. Whichever one, I can't keep them all straight. 
But that's not what happened. There's other words that they could use to put them into a hotel type thing. The Good Samaritan. When the story of the Good Samaritan goes out there and he says he goes to the, the innkeeper and he pays him and he said, if this isn't enough to cover it, I'll pay you when I get back. That is a different Greek word used there than what's used right here. Here, it is talking about a guest room. Does anybody in your house have a guest room? Most of us have that spare bedroom that if we had guests staying with us, that would be where they would stay. Let's go to the next slide. You see, this is what an Israelite house looked like. When you think about this, you go in here, you've got the bottom part here. And they've got the storage, and sometimes they'd bring the animals because they had this little courtyard. And you'll see some of this stuff in other countries too. It's still, yeah, I'll take, I'll take that. I'll take the laser pointer. I didn't bring it up with me this one. Everybody stare at Evan as he's doing a great job back there. All right, here we go. Well, you, you've got, in other parts of the world, they have this stuff in different climates. In fact, when we were in El Salvador, we were at your dad's house. He's got this beautiful courtyard. Uh, and the house is gorgeous, actually. And, I mean, there were trees growing with fruit on it. Was it avocados or what was it? Yeah, like you walk out of your bedroom door and like, man, I want an avocado. You pluck it off the tree. How great would that be? There were chickens running around, so if you want a chicken dinner, you just grab one and cut its head off and eat it. I mean, I don't know, maybe not. Anyway, but I mean, the different world. And so you have all of this down here. Now they got storage in the kitchen, so all the activities up are, were down here. But the family would stay up here, this upstairs living space. This is known as the guest room. In Jewish culture, when you traveled, you would always take in a Jew. If, they were, if you were Jewish, they were Jewish. You would always take them in. If they showed up at your door, you had to take them in. It was taking care of your neighbor. But if they were family, they stayed together. That's how that worked. And, so, and they could also many times go up on top of the roof and stay up there. In Acts chapter 2, when they were in the upper room, that's the upper room. 120 people, pretty packed. Now, think about this. When they came in, who do you think they stayed with? They stayed with family, because that's what happens, right? Every Jewish person was required to come back to Jerusalem for the census. How big and how many people do you think are comfortably sitting up there? We don't know how big the family was, but it would be a lot. There were a lot of people in that room. Again, we come back to the ladies. So ladies, you're getting ready to give birth. How big of an audience do you want? Zero. If you could kick the doctor and the husband out, you'd probably do that too. We're not looking for an audience. You see, they were coming in here to stay. They weren't at a hotel. It wasn't like they were out of room. There was no room for them to stay because the place was packed when it was time to give birth. One of the theories is, is that they went and they gave birth in a barn. Another possibility is right here would be a stable. It's at least a possibility. I'm not saying that's what it is because I don't believe that's what it is. I'll explain to you what I think it is here in a little bit. But one of the possibilities is that she had it here. Okay? So when we look at what the Greek says, it is not talking about a motel city. So how do we come to that thing? Because we read it in English, we assume we knew what it meant, and it fits. it's a really nice story. I mean, here's Jesus born so lowly that he was born in this stable. And they're just because there was no room for him. Kind of like it is today. There's just no room for Jesus in your lives. Right? Yeah, that's lame. I agree. Okay? But that's, that's the kind of mentality. So go ahead to the next one. Let's look at this. 
Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, what is the Christ? The Christ is the Messiah. Okay, It's not Jesus' last name. It means anointed one. So, where do these people come from? From the east, right? Keep that in mind. They went to Herod. They came for a purpose. They came to worship him. Wherever they showed up, it really, it really worried Herod. Okay, go on to the next verse. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophets, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there's a couple of things that jump off to me. Number one, what do we say the narrative is? How many wise men were there? Three, right? We three kings of Orientar. You can sing the song, right? If you ever went to elementary school, the next line is smoking on a rubber cigar. All right? But we think of three. So there's some things. Again, just looking at this, understanding the Israelite culture, we need to understand, why was Herod so troubled by the showing up of the wise men? The east was not Jewish people. Why did they know what that star meant, number one? Number two, they quote Scripture. How did they know Scripture? We just accept this, but we never ask these questions. These are questions we should ask. So let's go to the next one. This here is the route that they took. They came from Babylon. And they went up here. We, we assume this route, okay? We don't know this uh, definitively, but this was a major trading route, and they likely would have taken this, okay? So they went through Jerusalem looking for the wise men. That's where Herod was, or looking for the king, the new king, the one born of the Jews. That's a long trip, about 40 days. 40 days it takes to make that trek, thereabout. But again, here we are. They're from Babylon. You guys think biblically for a second. What is Babylon? If you go all the way back, that's where the Tower of Babel was. Where Nimrod rose up, they're building a tower that they can reach the highest places and worship the stars. And God comes down and confuses their language and they have to separate. That's where we get the term Babel, Babylon. All of that, Tower of Babel. This is the place where Nebuchadnezzar was, where they took the Jews captive. This was not a place that Jews like to associate with because they think bad things. These are pagan people. These are not God-fearing. And yet these people saw the star, knew what it meant, showed up, and quoted Scripture to Herod. How does that happen? Let's go to the next one. First thing. He said to them, we are looking for the king of the Jews. Now this is when Jesus is older. Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. What is he talking about there? You see, we've got to understand something. When the Babylonians, these, these Persians that came in, they did not travel in groups of three. They traveled in groups of hundreds. It was a caravan that came into town. A huge caravan. Why do we think three? Because there was three gifts. 
So we thank three because of the three gifts. But this caravan comes in, they knew the scriptures, they come in, they said, we're looking for the king of the Jews. What they said that to is the king of the Jews. Obviously, he wasn't the one. When Pilate asked this question, are you the king of the Jews? This is a reference back to the moment we just read about. Because they were looking for him. It was prophesied that the king of the Jews would be born in Bethlehem. He's saying to Jesus, are you the one that all these people have been talking about, that these people came in. It was an uproar. Could you imagine a small area and you've got these Persians coming in by the hundreds into your town? The last time that happened, what, what took place? They took them captive. So maybe everybody's a little bit on edge. But here they take them uh, seriously and he said, we're just looking for the king of the Jews. This is a reference back to that moment. Go ahead to the next slide. So after that, he sends them on the way. This is what Herod says. Then Herod said, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Now, whether that is an actual star or something supernatural, I do not know. You, it, it, it implies something supernatural in the fact that it was moving, but that doesn't mean that it was, okay? We're not going to get too hung up on that. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Go to the next one. And when they had come into the house, they saw that the young child with Mary and his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened the treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So here we've got Herod trying to figure out when the star first appeared. Because what do we see when we see it in the movies, we see the picture. They show up and here's this little baby in a manger. But if you remember, Herod puts out a decree. What did the decree say? He's going to kill every male child born under Two years of age. By the time these guys get to Jesus, Jesus is about two years old. It doesn't say that they would find him in a manger. It says that the shepherds will find him in a manger. The shepherds found him first. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But here we've got Herod. He's trying to thwart the plan of God. And ultimately, who's behind that? Satan. What happened with Moses? They tried to kill every male child, but his mother took him, put him in a basket, pushed him down the river, gets adopted in, and he was the deliverer. Here you've got Jesus. Hey, if we can kill this Jesus and get him out of the way, there can be no Messiah. And that's why they want to figure it out. But they were divinely warned in a dream. So let's talk about this gold, frankincense, and myrrh for a minute. Why those three gifts? What is so special about those? Well, you have to understand something. There is a little bit of typology going on because we have to understand kind of the, the mindset of an Israelite. These are not typical baby gifts, okay? In fact, if anybody shows up when you're having a child and these are the gifts they give you, invite them to every birthday party from here on out, okay? Because these are extremely expensive. Those are people you need in your life. But gold is always given to a king. Frankincense was burned as part of the priestly duties. It was the incense that they burned in the tabernacle and in the temple. And myrrh is what they used to embalm with. You've got the king and priest right here, 
and the foretelling of his death. Going on right then and there. You see, it was all pointing. Why did they pick those three gifts? I don't know. The only thing I can say is that it was probably the Holy Spirit that told them. Why can I say that with confidence? Well, they were just warned in a dream by God, and they departed for their own country. Well, why were they warned in a dream? Well, we've got to understand who these guys were, these Persians were. Go ahead to the next one. Next slide. You see, these guys were dream interpreters. And these guys were trained by Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 46, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face prostrate before Daniel and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. Same incense that we saw there before. Okay? Now why is that? Because Daniel just interpreted the king's dream that nobody else could do it. And not only did he interpret it, but he also told him what the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. You remember back to the story. He had had this dream, and he went to his people, these Persians, went to these people and said, listen, you tell me what dream I just had, and you tell me what it means. And they said, well, we'll tell you what it means, but you've got to tell us what you had. He's like, no, 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 that's not where we're going to do this. And only Daniel could do this. The king answered Daniel and said, truly your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the revealer of secrets, since you could reveal the secret. Then the king promoted Daniel. Remember, Daniel was one of the Israelites taken from Jerusalem. They're in captivity there. And gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. You see, Daniel is promoted over these uh, Persian people, these rulers that were there, these magicians, these dream interpreters, these astrologers. He was promoted over them, and he trained them. He taught them how you interpret dreams. He taught them the Hebrew Scriptures. How did they know what to look for? Because for hundreds of years, this is about 500 years before Jesus shows up, for hundreds of years, they have had copies of the Hebrew Scriptures and were trained originally by Daniel on what to be looking for. Remember, what did Daniel prophesy about? The coming of the Messiah. I mean, both times, technically. But he nailed down to the very day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey. I mean, the very day. When you do the math, he nails the day with such precision that a lot of of researchers don't believe that the book of Daniel was written before Christ was born. They think it was written after the book of Malachi because it was so precise that there's no way somebody could know that in advance. So it had to be written down as history and not as prophecy. Go on to the next one. So when we see here, we talk about this, what do we see here? We see that it wasn't just some hotel that they showed up. It was the family's dwelling. And we also see where these wise men come from and why they knew to look. Now think about this. Just think about God orchestrating everything together and how powerful this is. Why were the Israelites in captivity to begin with? They didn't keep the land Sabbaths. They were required every seventh year to keep the land Sabbath. And they had never done it. So thus judgment comes upon them. They're taken into captivity for 70 years. Because that was the amount of time that they owed for the land to rest. You know, if these people who are called by my name and will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Jeremiah 29. What do you think that's talking about? The healing of the land. Jeremiah was one of the prophets during the time of the captivity. So it was the land Sabbath. But... While they were there, it is no coincidence that you got a man named Daniel ordained by God setting up and put in charge of these guys 
for 500 years later to recognize the sign that the Jews should have known but didn't. And here they come looking for the Messiah. You know who wasn't looking for the Messiah? The Jews. They didn't recognize the signs of His birth. They didn't recognize the signs of His death. But one of these days they will recognize when it's time for Him to return. They will call out to Him and Jesus will come down. Now let's look at this. Let's talk about some shepherds. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Now there were in the same country, okay, same area, right there in the Bethlehem area, shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. Who's this written to? Israelites. Who's all people? All of us. For there is born to you, who's you? Still the Jews. This day in the city of David, what's that? Bethlehem. We see that in Luke. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Go on to the next one. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I would always read this, and I didn't think much of it. And then one day, it dawned on me. And this is, again, squirrels with knives. I apologize, but this is just how my brain works. Why didn't an angel show up to shepherds? You have wise men from the east coming. You've got angels appearing to Mary and Joseph, major players in it. You've got uh, John being born supernaturally again to, to Mary's sister or cousin or whatever it was. Yeah, and, and you've got all these things going on. But shepherds, I mean, shepherds in that day were not well thought of. And they, it was a very lowly position. In fact, um, you think about when, when David was crowned king and the oil was poured on him, he brings all the brothers, Jesse, he brings all the brothers over, look at this one, he looks good, he's tall, he's strong, got a strong back, all of that. Where was David? Keeping the sheep, right? It's like, well, you can't, can't be him. When David showed up and ends up fighting David, everybody's like, or Goliath, he didn't fight himself, he fought Goliath. When he shows up there, everybody's like, well, that's, that's the shepherd boy. He can't be, he can't take this on, right? So what do we see here? We see a pattern going on. In David's time, you have shepherds in the area of Bethlehem. We still have that today. So why did he, were these guys just picked randomly? Were they just lucky shepherds? I mean, this is one of the reasons that we know that there is some validity to this story. Because if you're making this up and you're a Jewish man, you do not write about angels appearing to shepherds. You write about angels appearing to you and telling you all these great things. Like, you're the hero here. Shepherds were not thought of very highly. So, why did he show up to the shepherds? And he said, you will find a babe in a manger in swaddling cloths. Did he tell them the location? So, how did they know? Go to the next one. Look at this. So it was when the angels had gone away from, from us into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known all the saying that was told to them concerning a child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Go on. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. They went to Bethlehem immediately. 
The angel never said, hey, you need to like cruise over there, take a hard left, it's by the third tree on the right, that's where the, shepherd, that's where the baby's at. Never said that. How on earth did they know where to go? But they knew immediately. We never think about this stuff, but it's like, wh- how, how do we get this information? Well, let's go to this next one. In Micah chapter 4, in verse 8, it says, O you, tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now think about it. We read Micah earlier, right? Right? Talked about how the one would be born there in Bethlehem. And here we've got this term, tower of the flock. What on earth is that talking about? Go ahead and go to the next slide. This right here is called a megdaliter. These are going to be found all over Jerusalem. These are towers that were built. A lot of times they're built in the front of a cave, and they are used for various purposes. But in Bethlehem, the tower of the flock was where the Levites had a series of priests who were shepherds. And these shepherds raised lambs for one purpose. Sacrificial lambs, primarily for the Passover. These megaliters, towers of the flocks. How did they know where to go? What was Jesus? The Passover lamb. You see, these guys, these weren't ordinary shepherds. These were priests. They were of the tribe of Levi. They knew the scriptures. These were not just ordinary people out doing a job. They were part of the priestly line, and they knew exactly where that angel would tell them to go because the Messiah being the Lamb of God. How do we know that? Because John tells us later, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go on to the next one. Here are mangers. They're made of stone. You can see a little baby in there. That's not a newborn. Thank God, right, ladies? But these things are found all over Israel. They're often made of stone. They're carved out. Why were they made of stone? Because the animal kicked them over. But he told, the angel told Mary that when the child is born, you're going to wrap him in swaddling cloths and you'll place him in the manger. He told the uh, shepherds, as you'll find him in a manger in swaddling cloths. And the wise men followed the star and they found him in the same, same thing. So what is going on here? What are the swaddling cloths? What happens is in those towers, when they had to, when the lambs were giving birth and, the, and they, were, they were having these baby lambs, they would immediately take that newborn lamb and they would wrap them in swaddling cloths and put them in the mangers to keep them calm because newborn baby lambs thrash. And what was the one requisite that had to be uh, done with a Passover lamb? It had to be without spot and it had to be without blemish. So this is how they did it. They would take them, they would wrap them up, they would lay them in the manger. That way there would be no bruising no broken bones, nothing. It would keep them calm until they could pull them out so they could later qualify as the Passover lamb. Do you guys see the picture that's going on here? Jesus, our Passover lamb, was born wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger just like the Passover lambs were. Go on to the next one. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is Jesus. How did the shepherds know where to look? How did they know what to look for? Because they had been doing this for hundreds of years. This was not a new concept. You see, the idea that we have of this Christmas story is so wrapped up in tradition. 
we never begin to question and we never go to the scripture to see you know what these things are there's nothing wrong with it. the principle of it is absolutely true but look at the typology that's going on here see if you don't recognize first and foremost that the scriptures were written by Jews to Jews, you miss out on all that cultural context. But when you realize that the reason everybody recognized what was going on immediately is because they were waiting on their Messiah to come, and they knew exactly what was going on. Now, someone tried to explain to me how a bunch of rabbis got together and orchestrated this story to make it fit so precisely. It can't be done. See, the one thing about Luke is Luke was not a Jewish man. And his story, is he's a Gentile man, which means he didn't grow up reading the Torah and the prophets and anything like that. He was a doctor. And yet he was a historian. He went around just writing down what he was told. And yet those stories coincide so well together. I mean, think about this, guys. Here's, here's, here's the takeaway of all of this. Number one, we need to be scriptural in all things. It doesn't matter, you know, the church for hundreds of years has given this story that isn't correct, but it, the principle is. But number two is how powerful is our God that down to the most precise little detail, he nailed everything. God's good, amen? I'm telling you what, when I read things like this and when I see things like this, I get excited because look at all the detail he put into the birth of the Messiah. And yet, there is so much more written about the return of the Messiah. That I get excited. And the reason I get excited is because I know he's coming away. He's, going, he's coming back. He's going to take away all the sickness and all the disease and all the bad stuff eventually. But I know before that happens that we have to be a light to the world. And we have to go out there and preach the gospel. And we have to do our part in this. And this stuff gives me more confidence knowing that that word is true. And that if Jesus came into the earth exactly like that, he'll return it just like he, we saw that we see in Scripture, and that we can trust every word that is in, those, in the Bible and every word that God has breathed into Scripture. Guys, as we go into the Christmas season, as we get ready, you guys celebrate with family. I know some of you all will be here tomorrow night, and if you can be, I encourage you to be here. It's always a good time. But, but let's keep, first and foremost, how awesome God is and what He's done for us. The birth of the Messiah is just the beginning. It's what he does after that, and ultimately his death, burial, and resurrection is the reason we are saved. But he orchestrated everything so well. We need to teach that to our children. We need to teach that to our loved ones. We need to teach that to a lost and hurting world that doesn't know him. There are so many people in this world that think that they are right with God and aren't because they don't simply just do what the Bible has said, that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ's work alone, and there's nothing that we can do that would make us right with him.